Okay, today's scripture reading is taken from Leviticus chapter 15. I'll be reading excerpts of the verse, verses 1 to 4, 13 to 20, 25 and 26, 28 to 31. This is God's infallible word. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of its uncleanness of a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. Verses 13 to 20. And when the one with a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days of his cleansing and wash his clothes and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. Verses 25 and 26. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, for all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. Verses 28-31 But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days. After that, she shall be clean, and on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, 
lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling the tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Jovian, for reading that. I think you're the only person that can read that with a straight face. This is a challenging passage to preach from, Leviticus 15. So would you pray with me as we go to God's Word? Father, we thank you so much that this too is your Word, and this is meant to drive us to Jesus Christ. Shine a light, the light of your Spirit on this Word. Shine a light on our hearts and drive us to Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, we're here in Leviticus 15, and we're working our way through the book of Leviticus. Uh, as you know, the book of Leviticus, chapter 11 to 15, is a particular section that looks at God's law and regulation for clean and unclean. Now, this sits in a bigger, uh, this sits within uh, a bigger context. As you know, in Leviticus chapter 10, we have the death of Nadab and Abihu, two priests of God who entered the presence of God and offered up unauthorized fire. They were struck dead. In chapter 16, the beginning of chapter 16, we have a recounting of the same incident. That tells us that Leviticus 11 to 15 is God's regulation and law given to us to prevent another incident like Nadab and Abihu, that God's people may enter into his holy presence and not be destroyed, not be obliterated. God gives us here his regulations for clean and unclean. And as we have traveled through this book, we've seen that it touches everyday things. In chapter 11, it looks at the things that we eat. Chapter 12, it looks at childbirth. 13 and 14, how we deal with infectious diseases. Today, chapter 15, it's God's law for clean and unclean for discharges from the sexual organs. Now, friends, I have to give you a PG rating for this sermon. Uh, so there are some children here, and uh, you might need to follow up parents with some further conversation. Uh, so I won't feel offended if you suddenly cover your kids' ears or eyes, or if you need to step out, or if you need to cover your own ears and your own eyes, uh, we won't feel offended as well. The coffee is pretty good, so please feel free at any point if you don't feel that you're ready to address some of these topics with your children, or if you're not ready to address some of these topics yourself, um, please do uh, feel free to, to, to step outside. Uh, but this too is God's word, my friends, and uh, this is why sometimes expository preaching is challenging. Let me just say this though, friends. Leviticus 15 might seem very strange and even offensive on the surface. But as one scholar put it, if you read it closely, you will discover that it conveys a symbolism of full humanity and sexuality that cannot be neglected. Now, why does he say that? Let me just give you a comment about the structure of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus 15 comes to us in the form of what's known as a chiasmus. Now, what's a chiasmus? You see, friends, when we write an essay, we tend to go from introduction to point A to point B to point C, and then we have a conclusion. In a chiasmus in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, sometimes what the author will do to emphasize a particular point is not to go A, B, C. What the author will do is he'll go A, B, C, and back to B again, uh, back to B again, and then back to A. So it's an A, B, C, B, A structure. And the reason he does that or she does, that is to show us that C, at the very heart of the passage, is the main point of this entire passage. Most scholars tell us that Leviticus 15 comes to us in the form of chiasmus. It's not making point A, B, and C. It's making point A, point B, point C, back to point B again, and then point A again. So come with me to Leviticus 15, and let me just give you some orientation to this text. It will really help us to see it in its context and better understand it. 
Leviticus verse 1 is the introduction. From verse 2 to 15, that's point A. And point A addresses irregular male discharges from the sexual organ. That's verses 12 to 15. Verses 16 to 17 addresses regular male discharges from the sexual organ. That's point B. Verse 18, at the very heart and center of the passage, is point C. And this one is regarding sexual relations between a man and a woman. Then it goes back to point B, verses 19 to 24. And this time, it addresses regular female discharges from the sexual organs. Then it goes back to point A, verses 25 to 30, which is about irregular female discharges uh, from the sexual organs. Now, verses 31 to 33 is then the conclusion of the passage. Now, what does this structure tell us? The structure tells us that the main point of Leviticus 15 is found in verse 8. It's in the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So, friends, Leviticus 15 is not just about how God regulates discharges. It's how God sees the beautiful sexual relationship between a man and a woman. And just a quick note about Leviticus, friends. We live in a very different time and culture. And this was written way before the coming of Jesus Christ. So many of the ceremonial and ritualistic details here don't apply to us anymore. But friends, underneath and behind some of these ceremonial details are eternal principles that do apply to us. And therefore, we take some effort to peel away the ceremonial details to find the eternal principles that are there. But more than that, friends, there is joy to be found even in passages like these because as we see Jesus Christ fulfilling all of the requirements of God's law on our behalf, we rejoice. And friends, that is how we'll be taking Leviticus chapter 15. So three points today, friends. The regular, the irregular, and the spectacular. The regular, the irregular, and the spectacular. Let's begin at the very heart of the passage. Come with me to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18. That's at the very heart of the passage. It reads, If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. In other words, if a man and a woman have sex, they need to bathe and remain unclean for a short period of time until the evening. Now, as we've seen in the series on the book of Leviticus, to be unclean means that you are not in the right condition to worship God. It does not necessarily mean that you are sinful. It just means you're not in the right condition to approach the holy presence of God. You see, friends, if I go exercising and I come back sweaty and grimy, I might not be the condition to hug my girls, but that doesn't mean I've sinned. All I need is a bath in order to be able to hug my girls. And that's what's happening here. To be unclean does not necessarily mean you're sinful. It just means that you're not in a state that you can enter into the holy presence of God because God is both clean and holy. Now, having said that, friends, as we work our way through the book of Leviticus, you will find instances where the person is both unclean and sinful. And here's the rule of thumb. If a sacrifice of atonement is commanded and made necessary, then that particular situation is both unclean and sinful. But in this situation, verse 18, what we see is that there is no sacrifice of atonement that is made necessary. They simply need to bathe and wait till the evening for their uncleanness to be taken away. So yes, after sex, they're not in the right condition and situation to enter into the holy presence of God to worship, 
but they haven't sinned. They're unclean for a short period of time until the evening. Now, friends, does this mean that sex is bad and sex is dirty and sex is just something for procreation? Does this mean that the Bible is so incredibly prudish? Well, actually, friends, on the contrary, the Bible actually has a very beautiful and positive picture of sex. Sex is one of the first gifts that God gives to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, before the fall, God says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex is one of God's beautiful gifts to humanity. It is excellent. It is beautiful. It is life-giving. But friends, that's precisely what there's a danger it is so good and so beautiful that the gift is at risk of displacing the giver if it's not checked. Now, Professor Ko Ming Him, who is an Old Testament scholar in Hong Kong, he puts it this way. Sexual intercourse within the marital context is a gift from the Lord. But since sexual intercourse engenders a strong desire for pleasure and for life, both man and woman cannot concentrate on being in awe before the presence of the Lord. Friends, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 in the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. He's a single man, and he's talking to married couples, a husband and wife, about sex. And this is what he says. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then, he says, come together again. Now, this is a single man telling a married couple how you should take care of one another in the area of sexual relations. What's he saying, friends? Sex is good and beautiful. As a married couple, you should have a lot of sex. The only thing that should take you away from sex is prayer. So some married couples, some of you were not at a prayer night on Friday night. You know what you were doing. Sex is a good and beautiful thing. It's meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And friends, this is a very important lesson that Paul, a single man, gives to both married couples and to singles at the same time. He's saying to us, sex is good. Sex is beautiful. That's the same message of Leviticus 15 as well. But sex is not ultimate. It cannot save you, and it cannot fulfill the deepest longings and desires of your heart. Therefore, as married couples, given the gift of marriage, and shall I say also the responsibility of marriage, yes, you are to enjoy the gift of sexual intimacy. But friends, not at the expense of communion with God. There are times that you refrain by mutual consent, to pray, to seek communion with God. So yes, friends, enjoy this gift as much as you can. Drink deep of it, but don't forget to drink deep of communion with God. Paul the single man also gives us an important lesson for singles, for those who at this point in time, God is blessed with the gift of singleness. And this is what Paul is saying. Because sex is not ultimate, 
you can still be a full and fulfilled human being without it. You see, our culture says you're repressed, you're dysfunctional, you're oppressed if you cannot express yourself sexually. But the Bible says no, friends. There is a way to be richly fulfilled in life even without sexual intercourse. You have the giver of the gift. You have communion with God. That's the only thing that should take us away from sexual intercourse as a married couple. And as singles, you have that reality. Married couples, you need to make some effort to make sure that our sex lives do not overtake our spiritual lives as we seek communion with God. So friends, sex is a very good thing. It is a beautiful gift that God has given to us. But it is so good that unless some checks are put in place, it has or runs the risk of displacing the good giver of all gifts, God himself. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 now. And this is where we're given the regulation for man's regular discharges, male regular discharges. Look at verse 16. It says this, If the man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed and be unclean until the evening. Now friends, this is probably some kind of an involuntary nocturnal emission. Again, friends, he's unclean. He's not in a condition to enter into the presence of God for worship. But notice, friends, no sacrifice for atonement is made, is, is required or commanded here. So this is unclean, but this is not sinful. This reminds even the single man of the beauty and goodness of sex, but also of the danger of misusing sex. It reminds us of the beauty of sex, but it also reminds us that it is not ultimate. God is ultimate. Communion with God is ultimate. Friends, let's look at verses 19 to 24 then, where the book of Leviticus addresses the issue of the woman's regular discharges, and this is a menses. Now, once again, let's look at verses 19 to 24. No sacrifice for sin is required. So this is not sinful. But verses 19 to 23 do tell us that she is unclean for seven days, and whoever and whatever she touches becomes unclean. Look at verse 24, friends. Verse 24 says, if a husband has sex with her during this period, he becomes unclean. Our friends, listening to this with our modern ears, we're kind of like repulsed, like what is this? It's so oppressive and regressive, so backward and, 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 and old-fashioned, oh my goodness. Friends, you have to read this through the lens of the culture it was written into. You see, friends, this was a patriarchal culture where women were treated as objects. They were there to serve the men. They were treated as less than human beings. They were meant to cook, to clean, to care for the children, and to be available sexually all of the time. You know what happens when God introduces this restriction into their lives God is saying for seven days everything she touches becomes unclean and therefore she cannot cook she cannot clean she cannot care for the children and verse 24 she cannot sleep with you 
what you need to do for her during this time is to give her rest and to care for her. This is incredibly humanizing when it's written into a patriarchal culture that the people of Israel found themselves in the book of Leviticus. And this is mind-blowing for that culture and that era. Look at verse 24. God is saying to the man, you cannot have her anytime you want. She's not an object. She is a human being that you're meant to care for and look after. This is incredibly humanizing. One scholar put it this way. This is a law of protection for women who should not be regarded as objects of men's desires. Sexual relations must be regarded as a gift. Male and female come together with a mutual respect for full humanity. So at the very heart of this passage, friends, we have God's plan, God's regulations for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. It is incredibly humanizing and incredibly life-giving. But friends, as every, in everything else in creation, sex is also distorted by sin and the fall. In Genesis 3, verse 7, after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, from, in Genesis 2, 25, they were naked and unashamed, free. But in Genesis 3, 7, after sin, they were naked and very ashamed. And they were so ashamed that they sewed together fig leaves and loincloths to cover their genitals. You see, friends, sex is a good and beautiful gift from God himself. But as with everything else in all of creation, it has been distorted and tainted by sin. And it needs to be regulated in order for it to be safe. So, friends, let's go to our second point. We move from the regular to the irregular. Let's go all the way to the top of the passage at verse 2. Now, this section here gives to us God's regulation for the irregular discharges that comes from the man. Verse 2 says this, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Verse 3 says, Whether his body runs with this discharge or his body is blocked up by this discharge, it is uncleanness. Now, friends, you might be wondering what in the world the writer of Leviticus is talking about. That word body is literally the word flesh, and it's a euphemism for the male sexual organ. And because of that, most commentators think that this discharge that it's talking about here is due to a sexually transmitted disease known as gonorrhea. I spoke to an infectious disease expert this week, just happened to have a chance to do that. He's a Christian. He looked at it, and he thinks it's probably an STD uh, called gonorrhea as well. Now, friends, why do you get gonorrhea? Because you misuse God's good gift of sex. Instead of constraining sex within the marriage relationship, you sleep around. That's how you get an STD. That's how you get gonorrhea. And therefore, friends, this particular disease comes to the person because of a misuse of God's good gift of sex. Now, what does it do to the person? Well, verses 3 to 11, this type of discharge makes the person unclean. 
And everything that he touches becomes unclean. But look at verse 12, friends. It takes it up a notch. If he touches earthenware, if he touches a clay pot, if he touches a sapo, okay, that earthenware, that clay pot, that sapo cannot be redeemed. It must be destroyed. That gives us a sense of the destructive nature of the misuse of sexual intimacy. Now, verse 13 says that after the discharge is gone, he must quarantine himself for seven days. And then on the eighth day, verses 14 and 15 says, he must bring two birds for a sin offering and a burnt offering to make atonement. And so, friends, in this situation, unlike the other two situations, a sacrifice is required, which means that this man is not just unclean, he is sinful. And that sin needs to be atoned for through sacrifice. This indeed is sinful. Now let's look at the woman, verses 25 to 30. This addresses the woman's irregular discharges. Now look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this, This is a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity. It's some kind of intermenstrual bleeding. Now friends, there are different types of intermenstrual bleeding, so what kind of bleeding is this? Well, let's look at the text a bit further. Verses 25 to 30 says, She becomes unclean, and she needs the same rituals for cleansing and sacrifices to make atonement, as did the man with gonorrhea. So it could be many different types of intermenstrual bleeding, but given the context, it is quite likely that what she has is also some kind of an STD. I spoke again to an infectious disease expert, and he thinks that this probably could be some kind of cervical cancer caused by HPV, the human papillomavirus. I can't even say that word. Some of you doctors have to help me. Okay. But it's probably some kind of STD as well. So once again, it is the outcome of the misuse of the good gift of sexual intimacy that God has given to us. So verses 2 to 15 and 25 to 30 show us the kind of sexual relations that are harmful to us and that God does not approve of. It is any kind of sexual relationship outside of the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. I know what some of you are thinking. This is way too conservative and way too prudish and way too old-fashioned. Oh my goodness, are you serious? This is 2023. How can you be so prudish? The fact is, friends, if you think about it, all of us are a little bit prudish. We're just prudish about different things. When it comes to sex, all of us have certain boundaries that we will not cross. Now, we might not all agree on what those boundaries are, but we have all got boundaries to say we will not go beyond this or that. Why is that, friends? Because intrinsically, 
we know that sex is not just a biological act. It's deeply emotional and even spiritual. It has the power to heal, but also the power to humiliate and harm very deeply. And so it doesn't matter how conservative or progressive you are, you have some kind of boundary when it comes to sexual intercourse. We might not agree on those boundaries, but we all draw the line somewhere. Now in our day and age, it's very common for us to say, let's draw the line at consent. Have you heard that before? Consent, as long as it's consensual, as long as you have two consenting adults, it makes it okay and beautiful. Now what's the problem with that? Well, all of us have seen two consenting adults ending up hurting one another, even though they've consented. And friends, we've also seen two consenting adults hurting other people who haven't consented to their consent. So consent between two adults alone does not make sex beautiful and safe. So yes, some draw the line there, but is that really helpful? What the Bible is calling for is not just consent, but super consent. Not just consent, but super consent. See, the Bible says we have to consider the God who made you and who loves you and who really is committed to you more than you're committed to yourself. We have to consider what he says in this situation. He looks at a man and a woman and he says, if you're within the bounds of marriage, I give my consent. And when a man and a woman give themselves to each other in the covenant of marriage, they're consenting to be with each other, not just for a night, but till death us do part. That's super consent, my friends, where you're not just saying, I give my body to you. That doesn't make sex safe. I'm giving my body and my life, all of me to you. I'm committed to you within the bounds of covenant marriage. That's the place, my friends, where God consents, you truly consent, and sex becomes not only safe, but healing and helpful and beautiful and life-giving. My friends, perhaps as some of you are hearing this, some of you are uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable, okay, uh, preaching this sermon. But for some of you, it goes beyond discomfort. It hurts. It hurts because you have personally felt the deep pain of sexual sin. Either something you've done, or something that's been done to you, or the outworking of sexual sin of important people in your lives. And so as you look at this and you hear this, it's not just uncomfortable, it hurts. And friends, can I say to you, the spectacular thing about Leviticus 15 is that God makes a way for cleansing and atonement even for the most serious sexual sin. He makes a way for cleansing and atonement through ritual and sacrifice. And he says it's available for all who will take it. And friends, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, 
God makes that same way even more immediately available to anyone who would take it. Come with me, friends, to Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. It says here, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Let that sink in, my friends, 12 years. And verse 26 said she had suffered much and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. But then, verse 27, when she was in a crowd, she reached out to touch Jesus' garment. And verse 29 says, immediately, without delay, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, verse 30 says, Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him, and so he turned around and he asked the crowd, who touched my garments? Verse 33, she came forward with fear and trembling and fell before him, perhaps expecting some kind of a rebuke from him. But instead, look at verse 34. Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Maybe you've been like this woman, whether you're a man or a woman. You've struggled for many years. You felt dirty, you felt guilty, you felt ashamed, and no amount of trying to suppress it or forget it will wipe that away. And you wonder to yourself, can God really cleanse and forgive me? Friends, a pastor friend of mine once said, the only type of sin that cannot be forgiven is unrepentant sin. Let me say that once again. The only type of sin that cannot be forgiven is unrepentant sin. You know what that means, friends? If you come like this woman, desperate, reaching out your hand to grab hold of Jesus with nothing in your hand you bring and with everything in your fiber clinging to him, saying, Jesus, I know that only you can forgive and cleanse. If that's what you do, friends, you can be assured that Jesus will not rebuke you. He will look at you as he did this woman, and he will say to you, son, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your greatest disease, sin. Some of you may be doing that for the very first time this morning. You're, you've been exploring the Christian faith, or maybe you've grown up in church all your life but you've never closed with Jesus. You've never turned away from your sin and said, Jesus, you are my only hope. Today is the day you do that, friends. Close with Jesus today. And some of you are Christians, but there are things in your heart and in your life that you have hidden 
from everybody. And you think you can forget it and you can try to push it away and explain it away. No, my friends. The only way to be rid of your disgrace, the only way to have your shame covered and your guilt wiped away is to come like this woman to Jesus. Say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, forgive me. And he will. Friends, he went to the cross to die for your sins. He's more than willing to forgive you and make you new. Let's pray. Father, as we work our way through Leviticus, we are confronted with your holiness, your high standards that are beyond all standards. And Father, we confess that there are times that we forget how holy you are. And Father, even as our hearts are struck by that holiness, we're also struck by your perfect grace and your perfect mercy. You have made a way for cleansing and atonement for people who do not deserve it. And so, Father, even as we see your holiness, help us to taste of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Help us to come clean with you, Lord. Because when we do, we know that you will never reject us. You will open your arms to us, receive us in, cleanse us, make us new, forgive us, and tell us to go in peace. Help us, Father. Give us both humility to confess our sins, to recognize we don't have it all together, but also courage this morning to run to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.